It's the week of June 8th, 2020, and you're listening to the Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pioneer Field Agronomist Jamie Farmer, and with me as always is my counterpart to the east, Nick Monning. So welcome back, Nick. It's been a while since we've done the show. Yeah, the whole COVID thing had us a little messed up with our schedule there for a while, Jamie. Yeah, locked us down. We appreciate Stephen Malin giving us a place to uh, record a podcast here today. So since it's been a little bit, we'll do just kind of a quick around the horn with each of us here. So how's things looking over there on your side of the state, Nick? Yeah, Jamie. So a lot of variance from my territory, central Missouri to eastern Missouri. But we're kind of, especially to the east, deja vu 2019 we have corn that was planted in April. It's early April, maybe V9, V10, all the way up to corn still being planted today. Some corn that still needs to be replanted. We have soybean planting going on. We have some early beans that were planted early April that are flowering. So quite a bit of variance, Jamie. Yeah, a little bit of the same over here, at least from the variance, but uh, maybe not necessarily as much replant. Uh, I think we've, we're probably a little farther along on finishing up here all but done on corn um, and, and getting real close on soybeans as well. There's some areas, some pockets of really heavy rainfall that have caused us to have to have some replant. Um, but, you know, into March corn is, is really pushing right along, like you're saying, V10-ish. Um, and then those beans, we have some there that were planted right out of the gate. Guys started on some beans there early in April, and they're starting to flower too. So, Impressive to see that while we've still got some that need to be put in the ground and obviously a few replant scenarios here and there. Um, so quite a bit of variance out there. I wouldn't say it's as bad as 2019 over here. There's so much uh, river bottom ground this year that got planted that was never even dreamed about getting touched last year. So things are better on this side of state versus 2019, but uh, obviously still some pockets of challenges out there. Speaking of challenges, uh, just to start off here, one of the, one of the uh, things that we wanted to mention here is Continuing down the road of the dicamba saga. So as most of you all are aware, on June 3rd, United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit vacated the EPA's conditional registrations for Extendamax and Genia and Fexapan. Today, June 8th, the EPA announced that it was going to allow growers and commercial applicators to use existing stocks that were in their possession on June 3rd, 2020, the effective date of the court's decision. Such use must be consistent with the product's previously approved labels, and applications may not continue after July 31st. Unprecedented situation, Nick, for them, uh, basically, to have a court decide to vacate that and stop use immediately. So got a lot of folks scratching their head, trying to figure out what they can do, uh, how to stay in front of things. So we want to address a few of those questions that we've been getting on this topic so one, for example, is how long do I have to wait to plant Liberty soybeans or enlist soybeans after an application of Fexapan, Extendamax, or Ingenia? So assuming you use 22 ounces per acre of Fexapan or Extendamax or 12.8 ounces of Ingenia, then you basically have a minimum wait period is 28 days with at least one inch of rainfall or irrigation. So sitting here June 8th, um, if, if that burn down was done here recently, there's a lot of folks that don't necessarily have an opportunity to want to wait that long. Um, we've seen in years past that you definitely need to wait. Um, we've, we've seen crop response show up as, uh, as that dicamba hangs on. So another question, if I have my Roundup Ready to Extend soybeans planted and I can't apply Fexapan, Extendamax, or Ingenia over the top, uh, what can I use? So... If the EPA comes out and says we can no longer apply these three products in Roundup Ready to extend soybeans in Missouri, then you're basically left with a conventional program. Some of the products like Cobra, 
Ultra Blazer, those PPOs. If you're running some of those, again, remember that there is quite a bit of PPO tolerance in the state of Missouri, so it's not an ideal uh, you know, herbicide program from that stance. So we want to try to maximize it as much as possible. Run 20 gallons of water per acre, um, COC, plenty of AMS. Make sure those weeds are less than four inches tall. I think that's crucial for any weed control program. And then also be sure to run a residual product for water hemp over the top. Then basically go on vacation, right? Uh, you, uh, it will burn the beans. You won't like what you see from a crop response. Um, Make sure to do it before they start flowering because in reproductive stages, it can cause yield loss. So uh, definitely something that is an option, but far from one of the best options. Another thing, uh, some folks planning to use high rates of glyphosate. So again, that's pretty much a Hail Mary with as much glyphosate resistant weed uh, issues that we have across our state. Um, But it, it is one of the options that you could use. I would uh, avoid using products uh, like Flexstar um, or that contain that active, active ingredient in Flexstar, such as Prefix, Warrant Ultra, etc. That particular herbicide, active ingredient, has a 10-month restriction uh, for plant back to corn, and we're getting pretty close to that, especially when you consider the weather that we have coming this week and when a lot of these applications are going to take place. We saw a lot of that in 2014, Nick, where guys sprayed a lot of that fomesophen late in 2013 and we saw that carry over in 2014 so yep. definitely don't want to run into a situation where we're trying to deal with the hand we've been dealt for 2020 let's not shoot ourselves in the foot when it comes to that 2021 corn crop so that's kind of the state of uh, <clears throat> the dicamba union if you will uh, with what we've got for this dicamba saga yeah jamie so that's a good summary of the dicamba saga to say the least uh, something else just wanted to quickly mention, not super top of mind, but early planted beans, Jamie, we're starting to see a few thistle caterpillars, which we've really seen the last couple of years. So it's nothing super new, but just wanted to make you aware if you got some early planted beans out there, those painted lady butterflies, they migrate up from the southern U.S. and Mexico, usually arrive in June. So they lay their eggs in soybeans. Those, those caterpillars emerge, the big hairy-looking caterpillars. So they'll web together those leaves, and that's kind of how you really notice them, Jamie, on the edges of the field. The leaves are all webbed together, kind of wound together, and they'll feed for two to six weeks, and then they'll pupate and emerge as new painted lady butterflies. So usually a couple generations per year. I guess that's part of the other reason to make you mindful because we'll see another generation of them. And they'll feed usually on the field edges. But everybody wants to know, when do I control them? What do I do about it? It's kind of the same defoliation levels as a lot of our defoliators in soybeans. 30% of the leaf area pre-reproductive, 20% after flowering. So that's kind of the guidelines. And that that means every leaf, not just the top few leaves they're feeding on. Yeah, that's a good point with those caterpillars. We're starting to see them more frequently across Missouri and you know, sometimes folks can look at it and it can be a little bit of a shock, especially when they web things up. But yeah, just keep in mind that defoliation and that's that's whole whole plant. Look at all the leaves. Um, that's a good point there with where we're seeing that out there early. Just a couple of corn topics now that we'll jump into. So, um, you know, I mentioned just a little bit ago that we're all expecting tropical storm Cristobal uh, to move up. Uh, one of the concerns that I have with that would be southern rust. And so, Nick, just things that are top of mind for me, uh, typically for us, southern rust does not overwinter in Missouri. 
So we're always looking this time of year down south to our counterparts that that are along the Rio Grande, they're up there along the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana, and we're trying to see where they're at. Their their corn crop obviously is a lot farther along than ours, and so we're trying to see how how big of an outbreak of southern rust do they have because that's where we're going to get our southern rust from typically. And so usually we see that in late July and August, and a lot of times that stuff is brought up from a tropical storm or hurricane that comes up then. So with that in mind, what makes this particular scenario this week with Cristobal such a unique situation for us, Nick? Yeah, Jamie, that's a great point. You know, it's usually a disease that you walk out in cornfields in late July, early August, you'll get that white t-shirt all orange from all the spores. But to your point, this one's different because... This one's moving in early, so we've never, never, never seen southern rust really early on corn before. But it's because it always blows in late, and so this is different because tropical storm Cristobal is the second earliest tropical storm to hit Louisiana since they started taking records in 1851, and it'll be the first one to hit this early since 1959. So that's why we've never talked about southern rust this early. Well, this is, it looks like the pattern of that storm, Jamie, is just going to push right up from the center of Louisiana. It's going to push right up in through the center of Missouri. And just looking at the iPipe website for confirmed southern rust cases in Louisiana this morning, there are some confirmed right there in the center of the state. There's a county that has confirmed southern rust. It looks like that storm will blow right through there and bring it right up into Missouri. So we're not telling everybody to go out and spray a fungicide right now on all your acres or anything like that. But we just want you guys to all be mindful of it and to be sure that you're constantly monitoring the corn crop for disease because southern rust is extremely debilitating. So it can really take out a corn plant in a hurry. When it moves in, you got to act pretty fast. So just experience last year, Jamie, from 2019, I saw some late planted corn where that robbed that southern rust 40 bushel where we had some side-by-sides fungicide without. And I've seen in the past in some other cases with some June planted corn where we saw 60 to 70 bushel robbed off the top from southern rust. So it can be really debilitating when it comes in early, and that's kind of the scenario we're set up for right now. So we need to be pretty proactive as far as monitoring it. And if we see it come in, we need to be pretty proactive with fungicide application. The other thing I guess to remember, Jamie, is that if it comes in this early and it's able to continue its movement and able to continue uh, regenerating, then that means we could potentially see a year where two fungicide applications might be needed in order to completely ward it off. Um, We may see that first one wear off early enough where we'd have to apply another one, but not a scare tactic by any means, just something to be mindful of. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. We're just trying to keep things on the radar, you know, there's a lot of things uh, every year s- seems to be more and more that uh, that we've got to keep tabs on. And with this unique scenario with Cristobal being so early and, and the direct track that, that that storm's projected to take and the fact that southern rust is already down there just has us concerned. If you look uh, to areas in the southern United States, it's not out of the ordinary for them to apply more than one fungicide timing uh, in their corn crop. Um, and so that might be a possibility of a scenario that we may need to do this year if if things line out, if the environment's correct, and we blow that stuff in here. But but the chances look like the pretty likely this year that that could happen. Um, speaking of corn, also, so you know, just kind of a where's my corn at? Uh, some of the rapid growth that we're seeing out there. So 
I think it's pretty similar across geographies, at least east to west. Um, that first week of April, late March corns, you know, around V9, V10. You've got quite a bit of that late April corns around V7, V8. And then we've obviously got some May corn that's behind that. And we'll still have some corn yet to emerge there where we've had guys just in pockets there, particularly in eastern Missouri, have had trouble getting into the field or some of those replant scenarios. So just wanted to talk about growth stages and a couple of things to keep mindful of at those different stages. So with that April planted corn, it's already begun the process of determining the number of kernels around the year. And it's also a lot of it is moving into that uh, process of determining what the length of the of the year will be. So as we move into this week, particularly into this week, a lot of that will determine that ear length. Row number is really strongly correlated to genetics, but the length of the year is highly impacted by the environment and the management um, of that particular field. So looking at this week and the, the cooler temps and the weather that we're going to have, obviously I have a lot of moisture, so that could bring some stress. Um, but just keeping that in mind is kind of how we're setting up the potential for this corn crop this fall from a yield perspective. The other variable that goes into that, obviously, that's yet to be determined would be grain fill, um, you know, and, and seeing how much uh, density we can pack in each kernel. Another thing to think about when we're talking about growth stages here is just uh, herbicides. A lot of them have a maximum growth stage restriction. So just wanted to call out just a couple of the popular ones out there. So Callisto is V8 or 30 inches, whichever one is most restrictive. A lot of corn, that April, early April corn, were past that. Um, and that late April, um, moving into some of that May corn, you might still have an opportunity to get some of that out there. Realm Q is V6 or 20 inches, whichever is most restrictive. Roundup slash glyphosate is also V8 or 30 inch height, whichever is most restrictive. So it's important to keep those uh, growth stages in mind. Um, obviously, want to follow the label. Most of the April corn is pushing these stages, or in some cases, past these stages. So there can be some yield consequences if you apply past a label. So we've seen every year uh, scenarios where you've got jumbled ear syndrome in corn with some of those late glyphosate applications. You can see some of those pinched ears from that ALS chemistry in Realm Q. And so important to re read, follow the labels, and also make sure you get out, grow stage at corn, understand where you're at, and be looking ahead and see where you're going to be, especially after the storm. There's a lot of these stages are going to come and go, and we're going to be past uh, uh, that cutoff date for those. So a lot of rapid growth that, that's taking place out there in the field. You can see some of that uh, most likely continue to show up in pockets this week where we've got some of those flash of yellow leaves out there here and there in the field where we've got some of that rapid growth syndrome showing up as well so we're pushing through these growth stages the corn's hitting the groceries on a lot of this earlier corn and we're really going to roll along here now so just wanted to make sure that you're thinking about your herbicide apps and, and you've got a game plan or a backup plan in mind continuing on this corn trend here nick we're talking about growth stages one thing that we are seeing in some places out there is some of this corn that's a little up and down, especially where uh, we didn't have a crop or we had some of the flooding last year. So just to explain a little bit to folks, uh, something that we've talked a lot about, but that we are seeing this year. Yeah, Jamie, and I, I don't want to belabor it too long because it doesn't affect everybody, but fallow corn is something in the river bottoms. We talked a lot about it last year and where we had flooded acres, how could we avoid it? So we didn't see it in 2020. We were trying to take a proactive stance on it. Uh, a lot of people have not, really ever seen it before a lot of people have heard about it but we are starting to see it now in 2020 
probably saw the first field about a month ago for me. And then it's just like every week there's another field, another field that's showing signs of it. And I could go into all the specifics, but basically there's just a soil mycorrhizal or, or fungal population that goes down when we don't have a crop growing there the year before. Helps corn plant get phosphorus and zinc. When it's not there, the plant's not getting everything it needs. It stunts its growth. And we're seeing some really perfect correlations. I mean, some really cool drone images, some really cool satellite images that overlay perfectly with soybean planting last year after the flood. So guys that planted a soybean crop or a cover crop like oats, something that hosts VAM, that crop corn looks really good. And outside of those boundaries, it looks really rough, stunted. Um, I guess all I wanted to mention from that aspect is just a couple things. So number one, to me, it's just evidence that fallow corn syndrome is real. So a lot of people have said before, eh, I've never really seen it before. It's not really affected me. I, I, I don't really think it exists. It does exist. We're seeing it this year. We've seen it before. It is real. This, this year's evidence to that. Number two thing to me, that another two takeaway is if you find yourself in a late flooded situation or a prevent plant situation, you need to do everything you can to get a soybean crop or a cover crop that'll host that BAM fungi, something like oats or cereal rye or maybe something else to get it planted there on that field so you don't have an issue with fallow corn the next year. And then the other thing is just to remember, once you see it, there's really no proven rescue treatment. So there's really nothing you can do other than just watch it. Hopefully it comes out of it and learn from it. Yeah, I think those are three good points there, Nick, when it comes to fallow corn. So I'm with you. There was uh, some folks, even in the professional realm, that were that were trying to say all winter that the fallow corn syndrome is not real and that it's not something to be worried about. If If those folks are still skeptical out there, you know, come see some of these fields with us and walk it with some of the growers. And, and unfortunately, your last point there, um, there is no rescue treatment. So the folks that, that didn't listen to us necessarily or, or think that it was something that they needed to, uh, to be proactive on last fall when they had an opportunity to, uh, there's really nothing they can do about it now. To be determined what the environment in this growing season does, um, obviously it's not, uh, not a direct uh, uh death sentence for that corn necessarily from that standpoint um you know it still has the opportunity to come out of it and, and get off to the races and still make a corn crop um, so we'll just have to see what the impact will be based on what we get from pollination windows and grain fill and things like that yeah you know jamie experience from 16 showed that at some point the corn usually does grow out of it it's just a little bit behind but we'll see to your point how the year affects that being a little behind yeah one other thing, just to finish up here on, so we've talked about this uh, tropical storm pushing through. We've had some pockets, at least uh, on the west central side of the state, and then also some areas on the east side of the state and the north central. Um, there's a lot of a lot of parts of Missouri's geographies that have had over 16 inches of rain through April, April through June, and a majority of them will definitely see that if we get the rainfall totals that they're predicting with Cristobal or the remnants of that storm as it pushes through. So, you know, just thinking about that amount of rain, we're thinking about nitrogen. What are some of the numbers that we use there or, or why would we be concerned, Nick, if we're starting to push above that 16 inch threshold? Yeah, that's kind of a threshold that Dr. Peter Scarf at MU had developed. And if you get 16 inches of rainfall, April through June, it says your chances of nitrogen loss go way up. So on a sandy or siltier soil, that's probably going to be more of a leaching concern. 
if you're on a poorly drained soil, which we have quite a few of those, especially as you go east or gumbo in the river bottoms, those kind of things where it's poorly drained, then you lose your nitrogen through denitrification, which means it just goes up through the atmosphere. Yeah, so, you know, staying in front of things, want to make sure that you assess your corn crop for any of its nitrogen needs. A couple of things to keep in mind that can affect uh, how much nitrogen loss potential you have out there. So, um, obviously, application timing, so closer to planting is going to be better. That that definitely matters a lot. And then form matters, too. So, if you have something like spring, anhydrous within serve, least likely for loss. Um, any of the spring applications is going to be least likely for loss. And then uh, if you're also using something like uh, dry or liquid or fall applied anhydrous, those are going to be things that are more risk uh, for loss potential out there. So considering that form, considering that application timing, and then also the amount of rainfall that you've received across those farms is going to be important for you to uh, to try to take advantage of, of any rescue treatments that you might need. One tool that we have used the last several years, a lot of growers have, have had good success with is our nitrogen model that we have through granular agronomy. So if you're assessing your risk potential and you fall into some of those categories that are more at risk, that may be an avenue that you take to try to figure out what amount of loss you have uh, potentially seen, especially as we go through this week to see what Cristobal brings us um, to be able to go out there to make any sort of uh, any sort of over-the-top rescue treatments out there. So with that, Nick, is there any, anything else there that we need to think about when it comes to you know rescuing this nitrogen loss potential that we have out there? Yeah, Jamie, I guess the only other thing, couple things I wanted to add was just number one with his, at least in my geography, was as wide as the planting window it was and the application window. So the larger gap you have between application and planting, obviously the more risk for loss. And what I mean there is if you applied your anhydrous this fall, but you didn't plant your corn till June, that's a pretty highly susceptible for loss because that nitrogen is laying there for a long time before it's actually going to get used. So be mindful of that. Or even if you spring applied and you back in March and you didn't plant your corn till June, that's still a pretty wide gap. And then the other thing I just wanted to mention is we talk about it all the time, but that corn crop still has 40% of its end to take in at tasseling. So there's a long window to rescue. And there's even some data we have within Pioneer uh, working with K-State last year where we show we can rescue corn even later than that. So it means that window to rescue is pretty darn wide. Yeah, that's a good point. There's there's definitely plenty of time left to be able to recoup any impact that this nitrogen loss may affect. So uh, definitely want to assess that situation and uh, get some plans in place uh, to be proactive on that. So we definitely have time there. So with that, uh, just to kind of wrap us up here, so um, thistle caterpillar, got some pockets of the, that pest showing up out there just to be aware of on the early beans. Tropical storm Cristobal is going to bring a couple of things that we need to keep in mind. So obviously corn and the southern rust threat that we have out there and other diseases for that matter uh, with this excessive moisture. Uh, the growth staging that we have out there and trying to stay in front of herbicide restrictions after this storm, we're going to be past a lot of those. So we need to have a backup plan in place to uh, to go out there for those fields that still need to be applied. Uh, the phallocorn syndrome is continuing to show up out there. Um, so just, uh, just wait and see game that we're in now to see how much effect that will have. There's not really anything we can do about it from this stage of the game. 
And then the nitrogen loss potential is there already in a lot of pockets. But with this additional rainfall that we're going to get this week, a majority of our of Missouri is going to see uh, probably some nitrogen loss that might need to be uh, might need to be addressed out there. So a lot of things to keep on your plate. Obviously, there's a lot more that we didn't cover. Um, again, if you're ever uh, looking for answers or additional information, you can always reach out to your local Pioneer sales professional. Uh, Nick, it's important for folks to know where to find us if they can't find us in the field. Where should they look? Uh, they can find the podcast at podcast.pioneer.com, and they can find me on Twitter at Nick Money. And I'm at the Jamie Farmer. And so, again, we thank you for your time. We thank you for your business, and we look forward to speaking with you again.